Welcome to Blammo, a podcast with an exclamation point. This week, I sat with Ben Clymer, the founder of Hodinkee. Hodinkee started as an enthusiast watch blog in 2008, and over the course of a few years, skyrocketed to a premier magazine and news source for all things watch-related. I talked with Ben about why he started Hodinkee and how a little blog about watches made enough noise to attract people like John Mayer and Johnny Ive deeper into the watch world. Here's my conversation with Ben Clymer. So we're going. Okay. So first off, thank you very much for coming on. That's my pleasure. Good. Um, so you're Ben Clymer. I am. You're the founder of Hadinky. Yeah. The founder of the Dink. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> um, I want to get in. There's so much stuff I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about how you fell in love with watches, how you yeah. started a company, how you went from building the company out of your apartment in the West Village to this killer loft that I'm in. Like, you know, I want to get in the American businessman story. I want to get into why you have the dopest rose gold Nautilus on your wrist. (laughs) But before we get too crazy, I want to know about Ben more. Okay. So you're originally from upstate New York? Yep, I'm from Rochester, New York. Kind of born and bred up there. Um, Raised in, you know, kind of a a very common middle class, uh, you know, upstate New York upbringing. Both my parents are from downstate. My mom's from Long Island. My father's from New Jersey. Uh, They both settled in Rochester after attending RIT. Um, What's RIT? uh, Rochester Institute of Technology. It's like a technical school up in, in Rochester. Oh, okay. So my dad went there photography, for photography. My mom went there only for, I think, her first or first or maybe first two years of, of undergrad, then transferred back down here to Long Island. They fell in love, stayed together, uh, ended up settling in, in Cortland, the beautiful Cortland, New York, Whoa. Uh, and then Binghamton, and then ultimately Rochester, uh, where my sister and I were, were born and raised. And, you know, Rochester is, is a great place to grow up. Uh, it's super laid back. Uh, it is closer to Canada than it is New York City. Uh, yeah. You know, I often say that I'm from upstate New York, and people think I mean like Rye or Scarsdale, but this is way upstate. Uh, and it is it was just a lovely place to grow up. I mean, it was, it was kind of a, a wholesome upbringing, I would say, um, you know, kind of like nice academic-focused public school, things like that, um, where, you know, people were rewarded and, and respected for, for being intelligent. Uh, I mean, jocks and sports and things like that were, were equally important, but I would say that, you know, you could be a dork and have friends and, and be cool, you know, uh, quote-unquote. Right. Um, so it was just kind of a, a standard upbringing in, in, in upstate New York. Do you have any siblings? Yeah, I've got an older sister, Abby, who lives in Denver, Colorado. Um, you know, we were we weren't we were never really close growing up, but we, we weren't. You know, how much uh, older? Uh, she's uh, she was born in seventy nine, so three years older than I am. Okay, uh, four grades. Um, so we were never in the same school at the same time, which I think was probably maybe a good thing, maybe not. Um, she has since had got married, obviously, and had uh, two kids. Uh, and I think since she had the, the two little boys, we've become closer, uh, just because I want to be a part of, of their lives for sure. Yeah, that's kind of happened with me and my brother. Like, I have an older brother, and yeah. he had a kid, and now we're, like, best friends. Yeah, it, it, it just happens. You know, it's like anything. Yeah. And not that my sister and I ever had any real issues. Oh, of um, course. But, you know, it was one of those things when, when the kids uh, started to come into the picture, you said, okay, like, these are these are little people. They're, they're so kind of malleable, and you just want to be a part of, of, of their lives for sure. Yeah. So I want to kind of walk through. You were at 
what, like, what brought you to New York? You were working at UBS, I uh, believe? So, so I went to Syracuse for undergrad. Uh, I went there for uh, business. I don't even really know what that meant at the time. Business. It's just business. Hashtag business, <laughs> you know? And, like, I, you know, it was ultimately one of those things where I knew I wanted to be in business, whatever that means. Right. Uh, and I also wanted to be in computer science. Uh, okay. And so one of the schools that I got into that, that gave me a little bit of a scholarship was Syracuse. They had the business school and the computer science IST school. Uh, so I went there and did did pretty well. Um, spent my my junior year, uh, the entire year abroad at, at Oxford. Uh, did oh, that shoot, and then came back uh, and did kind of like uh, independent study for all of senior year, which was ultimately just me and and two guys and one girl uh, doing business plans. Uh, and they said that you know if if you could figure out a way to make these kind of you know I would say in depth enough, you could get course credit for this. So I had a kind of an atypical experience at Syracuse where my entire junior year I spent in England and my entire senior year I spent doing kind of like entrepreneurial competitions. Uh, and, you know, to, to some success uh, in national competitions, stuff like that, kind of ridiculous ideas looking back at them, but, but you know, kind of fun for the time. Uh, right. And then I was in a really kind of nerdy slash amazing organization called Delta Sigma Pi. Is that a fraternity? It, it, so it's a business fraternity. So it's not. Yeah, <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, yeah, it's one of those. Uh, but they were great. Uh, and so they were just for like, you know, business dorks, uh, essentially. And a guy who I didn't know then, uh, who was in the NYU chapter, he was a year too old than me, said, hey, uh-huh. we've got this great consultant company called Aquis in New York. Uh, you should, you look like a good candidate, come down and interview. Small little consulting firm, had never heard of them. They were, it was kind of like a, you know, like a, an Accenture or McKinsey or a uh, type of uh, BCG type of uh, firm, but m- much smaller, about 40 people here in Tribeca. So that was my first job. Uh, so work for uh, for Aquis, and it was a, really a great job. And we, we worked with some amazing clients, including the U.S. government, Pfizer, um, Avon Cosmetics, uh, just crazy kind of big companies. I spent about a year and a half at Pfizer uh, here in New York. Oh, yeah. And how, how old are you at the time? You're 22? 22, 23, you know, right out of school. Uh, right. and it was great cause I, I got to come in and, you know, we were doing relatively senior level, you know, roles and positions. So even though I was a kid, I wasn't making decisions, but like my, my immediate bosses were. And so I got to meet, you know, the CFO of Pfizer who at the time was going through a, a big deal or a, it was really a, a difficult time for them because they had just lost the patent on Lipitor. Uh, which was blood thinner. Uh, Lipitor was cholesterol. I'm going to say it was a blood thinner. Okay. I don't know. I, whatever. Yeah. One of the two. Um, yeah. So Lipitor, all I know is that it was a $16 billion drug. It was the most valuable drug in the history of pharmaceuticals. Oh, uh, wow. And so they had just lost that, which means that the generics could now come out. So like, yeah. fuck, like, you know, we were making $16 billion on this thing and anybody can make it, you know, you can see it at CVS or whatever. Um, so they were figuring out how the hell do we make up for this $16 billion hole in, in, or, you know, or some amount, uh, somewhat equivalent to that, uh, in our, in our balance sheet. And so we had to come up with, with other ideas of wh- essentially where they could cut costs and where they could make more money. And you're like, Hmm, all this staff over here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What was amazing about Pfizer though, was the first time that I, that I got to see, um, subsidized, uh, cafeterias. So you could buy a bagel and cream cheese at the Pfizer cafeteria for a quarter. For a quarter, like huh. a full-on bagel and cream cheese for a quarter. And lunch was like $1.50 and whatever. It was just amazing, especially as a young kid not making much money or whatever. It was just great to walk yeah. in and be like, I'll take lunch for $2. Yeah. Um, so we did that. Uh, and then uh, I took some I, – I ended up leaving there just because. And I think like a lot of people after two years of, of working at any job when you're right out of school – you're kind of ready for the next thing. Yeah, wh- whatever it is. And, like, I've, yeah. I've seen it at our own company. I've seen it, you know, with friends and things like that. So after two years, uh, I just left. Uh, and I took about three months to kind of, like, try some things and do some, some kind of fun projects and do some writing and things like that. Uh, but I always had this fallback of uh, one of the more senior folks at my first company had went over to UBS and he said, whenever you want, 
effectively, we have a job here for you. And so I never wanted to take it, to be honest with you. Uh, That's but, killer, though. But ultimately, I did because yeah. I needed to pay my rent. Uh, so I went in there in 2000 and I'm going to say eight, early 2008, to the, maybe late 2007. Yeah. And they, they promised me, you know, honestly, really good salary, really good benefits. Really this is right bonus. before the financial crisis. Exactly. So <laughs> yeah. they, they promised me a, a ton of amazing things, especially as I was probably 25 at the time. I was like, fuck, I'm making six figures. There's a bonus. There's like just crazy stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so I went in expecting that, expecting to work hard um, and in a very different environment. Because like Aquis was like a pretty chill, like kind of cool, hip downtown, like, you know, boutique consulting firm. UBS is the exact opposite of that. Right. Uh, Button-up so, suits. Oh, yeah. And cubicles and just like just terrible. Sure. Um, so did that. And then, as, as you mentioned, that was right before the financial crisis, 2008, Lehman Brothers, et cetera. Uh, so shit just, you know, went crazy at that point. And UBS started laying people off like, I, I kid you not, they were laying people off by like the, by the uh, conference room. Like they just like, all you gone. And it was just like oh, so gosh. cutthroat. Um, and so that was when I quickly, quickly learned that I never wanted to be any part of like big business, just the way that I saw them treat, not necessarily me or even the people around me, but just like other people within the company that had been there in some cases for 10, 20 years, 30 years. I mean, UBS is a giant company. Yeah. They, they have made a lot of money in, in their day. And, you know, it's essentially one of those things where like all the senior managers, uh, were just there to protect themselves. And I saw them really manipulate some of my direct senior uh, folks uh, in a way that was just remarkably un- disrespectful. It was just really uncool the way that they treated some people to protect their own necks. Uh, and so I essentially was, you know, it was one of those situations where our group was essentially being dissolved. And they were like, look, man, like you can you can leave. We can lay you off and you can leave with a, with a check for severance, essentially. Or yeah. we can, you know, you can go over uh, to the group next door and continue to effectively do nothing. Uh, and so I chose to leave, of course, and I was just like, fuck it, I'm out of here, um, which allowed me to do things that I would not have been able to do otherwise, and then I had, like, it wasn't a huge severance package. It was, like, you know, enough of, for, like, three months or something like that, but yeah. it was something. Um, sure. And at the time, Hodinkee was already in my life. It was already... Because it was a Tumblr, right? Yeah, it was Tumblr first. Uh, Respect was, Tumblr. Yeah, that's right, man. <laughs> uh, is Tumblr still around? Do people still use Tumblr? Oh, ouch. Yeah. Is that I mean, it is still around, but no. No Nobody one really uses, uses it. it. Yeah, that yeah. was that was the thing. Even after we were well off of, of Tumblr, I, I know like the menswear crew were like really into Tumblr for a oh, while. Oh, yeah. I mean, Tumblr was kind of the greatest way. I mean, it was it was cool because it was like do-it-yourself blog. Yeah. It was like live journal for millennials, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Like yeah. everyone had one. Yeah. You could ask people questions. It, it was built in the network of Tumblr. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, it, it was a great place to, you know, we, we weren't on it very long, to be fair. Like, you know, we started it really quickly. And then a friend of mine, this guy, Matt, uh, who was a guy that I respected in, in tech, he ended up working for, um, uh, for Meetup. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was like, dude, you got to try Squarespace. And I was like, okay, what's that? And so I tried Squarespace, and it was like so This e- is pre-all of the subway ads of Squarespace. Oh, yeah. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah. This, was, this was eight years ago. You right. Know? Uh, and so we, I, I converted everything over to Squarespace, effectively started over. And this was probably 2008, right, when, when mm-hmm. EBS was going down. And started writing about just shit that I found interesting. You know, first the Omega watch that my grandfather gave me. And then I had heard that Eric Clapton's Daytona was being sold, which, strangely enough, was, like, sold last year as well. And that was, like, the first story we did. Um, and just started writing about interesting watches that, that I just, like, was fascinated by. And you're saying we, but really at the time it was yeah, you. Yeah, so th- that's, that's a force of habit. No, there. it's good. Uh, it's yeah. a great habit. It, I mean, you're, there's a lot of people s- still in this room. Yeah, I mean, and now, now it's, it's a we, but even back then it was a royal we, even when it was just a me. Uh, right. And that was one of those things that, that I think we were always, and I'm, I'm even saying we here, I was always kind of, uh, you know, willing to kind of, like, throw out that royal we so that it sounded like we were bigger than we are. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's The ultimate, like, blogger flex move. Exactly. 
I mean, yeah. you, you got to do it. And it's yeah. like, yeah, the, the, like it's more than just one dude sitting like at the time at a cubicle in UES in Weehawken, New Jersey. <laughs> um, and it was one of those things where it, it worked. And so once we did that, I found an, another friend, this guy, Chris Davis, who's a friend of a friend that said, look, I can redesign your Squarespace site and make it killer. And I was like, okay, I paid him like 1200 bucks, and he did it, and it looked amazing. Yeah, uh, I remember so, the H. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so then we did that, and everyone was like, wow, this is a really beautiful design. And then it got even, you know, kind of more well-designed after that. Uh, and design was always a big part of, of, of the site. Something that, you know, I'm not a designer myself, but I've got, I think, relatively good taste with the web. Mm-hmm. And, you know, working with actual designers, uh, we were able to create a, an interface and a UI, UX that, like, really presented, you know, it really kind of hit above its weight class uh, in many ways. And it I, did. I, yeah. I, mean, I remember seeing it. So, like, it was you and there was another blog at the time, which was still doing, I think it's still around, called Valet. Uh-huh. And... Corey Ollendorf of Valet, you know, what up, St. Louis. And anyway, but you guys had this look that I was like, oh, this is a real site. And this is this is pre-responsive because not everyone was doing mobile. But oh, yeah. it was also, you know, you looked at Esquire.com site and you looked at GQ site, you know, because I think GQ was was tied to Did- movable type. Yeah, dude. And also, GQ was not even a website back then, because my, my okay. very first interview ever uh, was, was done by a guy named Tyler Thorson, who's now at Ralph, who's still a friend of mine. And, like, you know, it's amazing to see how far he's come. He's been at Guild yeah. and everywhere. He's a great guy. And he interviewed me for, for his site, which was men.style.com. That's right. That was with him and Peskowitz doing exactly. In the Closet. Exactly. But like, so good. But these guys like work for fucking like GQ then and now. Like That is a meaningful property, right? And, and right. the fact that Condé Nast doesn't have the sense to say, let's go GQ.com. They do men.style.com. is just insane. Well, I think style.com, yeah. I mean, they just they didn't have the resources to do it. Not right. that I'm even defending them. They should yeah. have been way on it. But like style.com you know, lasted up until very, very recently, mm-hmm. right? Because then they tried, like, Vogue tried to take everything over and right. making things Vogue.com. Yeah, no, so, I, I mean, it was, I mean, what, what was it? it? was, like, 10 years that uh, they kind of were doing Style.com? Yeah. yeah. No, Style.com, I totally get. I, I, I'm completely respectful of Style.com. Style.com. Or Men.Style.com, But, it, but like, GQ's website was not GQ.com. No. It was Men.Style.com, yeah. which is insane to me. Um, but anyway, so, so Tyler gave me a really nice shout out then and I was at UBS and I'm sitting there in my cubicle with a suit and tie and like, you know, probably you know, like a, I don't even know what a J crew blazer, if I even wore J crew back then. Uh, and he's like, Hey, Leo, tell me about what you're into. You're the first guy under the age of like 50 to, to, to be knowledgeable or at least write about like high end watches. And I wasn't knowledgeable at the time. Of course, I was just like a guy. I was a fan. Uh, but I faked it, and the interview was great. And then like that interview brought in, you know, whatever, a few hundred or a few thousand, uh, uniques to the site. And um, and then another guy, Josh Spear, who's kind of like a trend spotter. Uh, he hasn't. Oh. I don't. I don't know if he's as active now as he used to be. I actually ran into him recently, but really, really smart guy. And he kind of like said, "Hey, here's this like young guy writing about watches," and it was on JoshSpear.com early on as well. And I would say those are our first two big breaks in the sense that we had like outside people writing about what we're doing. Right, uh, and those were those were really like impactful moments early on for Road Inky for sure. So there's a couple of things that I want to like kind of discuss. So I was one of those guys who saw that article and I was like, "Oh, cool! What's this? Watches." Yeah. And for me, I only understood the Casio that was on my wrist, yeah. which I've had ironically that I think I got it like Urban Outfitters because I was trying to be cool. <laughs> and then the other watch that I knew was Rolex. Yeah, right. And like I knew Omega because you had seen a commercial about someone doing. Uh, you know, like a, a race car ad or something like that. And um, so, you know, like I knew about that, but I really had no idea 
the the whole I you know how watches worked and and not just like that they told time but the fact of like the industry the the how luxury is being sort of you know discovered and nurtured and value in this stuff so like what was it that made you be like hey I'll be that guy yeah it, there was never and I, I've said this in in many interviews there was never a business plan there was never like oh my god I'm going to be the watch guy you know yeah it was one of those things where I was always into mechanical things compasses light meters my dad was a photographer we had light meters around all the time back when you needed a light meter uh, my grandfather was into watches car, you know old cars etc so I I had always been kind of intrinsically interested in this stuff. I wasn't an engineer. I'm not really like an engineer kind of oriented, uh, but I'm still fascinated by how, how things work. And when my grandfather, who was a hero to me, gave me his Omega Speedmaster, which is an automatic one, a later one that he yep. wore in, in his elder years, like the watch that I remember him wearing, uh, that was when kind of things changed. I was like, wow, this is like, you know, this is a $2,000 watch, which I couldn't even fathom at the time, of course. Uh, and I wore it every day for like 10 years. Uh, and I just started researching that watch in particular uh, when I was at UBS. Because, again, at UBS, like, I was legitimately bored. It wasn't like I wasn't, like, not working because I didn't want to. Like, I, tr- I wanted to be working. There was just nothing to fucking do. <laughs> uh, so I'm sitting there, like, what am I going to do? So I'm just, like, literally staring at, like, what I'm wearing, my shoes, my jacket. I turn my wrist. I'm like, oh, there's a watch. I'll just Omega or Speedmaster yeah. or whatever. So I started researching it. Ended up on uh, Chronomatics, which was Chuck Maddox's old site. Yep which was really the first kind of site that, that I ever really got into deeply. Uh, and then I was just, I essentially would just kind of say, hey, like, this is what I learned. And then I wrote about it. And, say, and I would essentially say, like, I was reading Chuck Maddox, and this was back on Tumblr back then. I was reading, you know, Chronomatics. Um, here, here's what I learned today. And what, what is really strange and in sort of like a cosmic way is Chuck Maddox passed away the month that I launched Hodinkee. Oh. Which is strange. Uh, and on some like, spiritual level, I'm, I kind of feel like there's a little bit of him in me in, in some weird, twisted way. Uh, because he was the guy. Like, if you talk to most like, chronogra- chronograph lovers, like Chuck was the guy. And I never met him. You know, I think we exchanged one email just to ask him a question, something like that. Right. Um, but, you know, he's a guy that, that I certainly you know, hold in high regard because he was doing it. Just in a, in a lot of ways, like Jeff Stein and On the Dash, like, these guys are doing it just because they love it. Like, they're not yeah. making a cent. They're just doing it. Um, and that's how we started as well. Like this was never going to be a business. It just kind of happened to work out that way. Yeah. Cause there, when you started at Inky, there was at the time, there was watch you seek yep. and there was time zone yep. and there was network 54. Yeah. So there was uh, all of those, which if you don't know, there are other watch websites and message boards, if you're listening to yeah. this. And so those existed, but I think the thing is it was very much, um, a, like a boys club. Yep. And, like a prideful nerd club and engineering club. And I think it, it was very much looked at, at least to me as this closed community. Yeah. Um, you can't, you can't really get on. I remember I tried to sign up for some of these sites and yeah. I had to be approved by an admin. It's ridiculous. And which is, is fine. But like, I just wanted to know because yeah. you know, I got interested in the watches from this and I was, you know, I, for me, I, I definitely wanted them because I just wanted acceptance, I'll just be honest, into the rest of the community. And sure. I figured I needed some sort of cool watch to yeah. like get in. And uh, I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go be an expert on this. Yep. I don't know anyone else that's doing it. There's this Hodinkee site. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Yeah. Um, like I had to look up what it meant, that it <laughs> yeah. meant like it was Polish for watch, yeah. right? Check. Check. Yeah. Pardon me. But, <laughs> but um, so, yeah. And yeah. I think what made me excited and why I liked Hodinkee, and I think, uh, you know, got more and more into it was the fact that you guys became 
this bridge between everyone else who likes this yeah. and then the people who aren't getting approved to get on to message boards and yeah. but want to know. Yeah, I, I would say that the, the biggest attribute that I had going into that was that I was never on time zone. I'd never been to time zone. I don't even know about it until somebody told I me I like about time it. zone, but you're not missing out that much. Exactly. I mean, yeah. now I've been on, obviously. But back sure. then, I had never heard of time zone. I had never heard of the purists. I had never heard of watch you seek. I was not a watch guy in the traditional sense. Like, I just knew what I liked, and that was Omega chronographs and, you know, eventually the Daytona and things like that. And because I never tried to be a part of that world, I just did my own thing. And I think that that's why it worked. And I just wrote about stuff the way that, like, me as a 25-year-old, like, you know, aspiring, uh, you know, kind of wannabe business guy in, in New York City would would want to would want to learn about things. And so without having to, to, to answer to the time zone community or anything, like, you know, back then, and even now, if you go on time zone or purist, like, you say something, there will be feedback, good or bad, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily accurate. It's just how, how that, that kind of, like, sub-environment kind of responds to things. Uh, and so without that, I mean, I, I had zero comments on my site for, for the longest of time, and I was just writing for me. And again, this was not really about broadcasting. This was about like me just expressing myself and keeping myself busy at work. Yeah. Um, so because of that, I never had to listen to, to, to what that feedback may have been. And, and had I listened to, to, you know, if I were on time zone back then, I don't think Hodinkee ever would have gone anywhere. Right. Um, so. So when when do you quit and you're like, all right, I'm going to try to do this full time? So when when I leave UBS, uh, you know, Hodinkee was making a few hundred bucks a month, but it was totally passive income because I had a full time job. So like, if I made two hundred bucks extra a month, I'd just you know take my then girlfriend out to a nice meal or you know whatever, buy a new sweater or something. Uh, so it was making some money there, and I remember the the first folks to say, hey, like, can we can we pay to to be on your site? The internet was 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 early you know the internet were these watch folks yeah these were were watch folks exactly Uh, so the the first two brands were Maurice de Mauriac uh, which you know I'm still friendly with the guys there and Matre du Ton Masters of Time in French Um, and they are also still around very high in brand but very low production and you know you know they paid me maybe a few hundred dollars a month Um, and I thought that was wonderful like that was amazing Uh, and then it got kind of bigger and bigger and bigger then I started freelance writing which was also a big break for me just to say, like, hey, I actually can write. I always kind of knew that I could or thought that I could, uh, but I didn't realize that, like, people would, would pay me for it. Um, so I started writing for Forbes, Forbes.com, GQ, GQ.com. I wrote for uh, How to Spend It with the FT. Yeah. Um, a few other places. Men's Journal was, was one of the first big breaks as well. Um, you know, kind of, kind of places like the men's magazines, AskMen.com. Um, and then I applied to journalism school because uh, I didn't really know. What year is this? So how, how long has Hodinkee been going on uh, when you go to So Hodinkee was launched technically. It was online in 2008. This was – I applied in 2009. Oh, okay. Uh, so this was sooner than what I thought. Oh, yeah. In okay. 2009 um, and started and got in 2010. Uh, and so that was at, at Columbia, which was you know kind of a dream school you know, in any in any way, shape, or form, even as an undergrad, got in there somehow, um, and yeah, and just went for it. I said, you know what? Like, I want to be. If I don't want to be a publisher or a media guy, I want to be just a journalist, uh, which I thought was was really kind of romantic in its own way of just like being a real writer and telling stories and all that. And so I said, look, if I'm going to do this, whether it's with Hodinkee or whether it's for whatever Esquire GQ, uh, I should know how to do it. Uh, so I yeah. went back to journalism school. So you so. You quickly establish yourself amongst the rest of the fashion industry, the luxury industry, that you are the knowledgeable watch guy. Because I remember there was a, um, a magazine, I think it may still be going on at the time, um, Man of the World. Oh, yeah. And you were writing for Man of the World. Yeah. I remember you were in print stuff at GQ. Mm-hmm. You're getting in all these things. Mm-hmm. And 
you had this writing style that I this is what I kind of want to talk a little bit more about that was like like come here I'm your friend I'm going to give you advice and when you were doing that and not talking about clothes right like because GQ will be like hey buddy wear your tie like this or something like that (laughs) and you weren't saying hey buy this watch but when you take that voice and then mix it with you know, watches that honestly that some of the ones you were talking about, like thirty thousand, fifty thousand oh, yeah. dollars, you know, and and up. How like how did you go about developing that voice and also being able to speak casually about things that are you know obscene uh, amounts of money and works of art? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's just it's kind of a, a variation on on who I am as 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 a person. You know, I'm a relatively laid back guy. I don't get too excited or I'm not very excitable about, about anything, even stuff that I love. You know, I love watches. I love old cars. I love old cameras, things like that. I love my family. Um, but, you know, if you talk to me day to day, I'd be like, yeah, like, this is great. Like, if, if you, you ask me about this, this rose gold Nautilus I'm wearing right now, I'd be like, this is fucking awesome. Like, that's about <laughs> as excited as I'm going to get about this thing that I truly love right now. It's you know? beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I genuinely fucking love this thing. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it's, it's just kind of who I am. It's like I, I speak in a very matter-of-fact way, and I'm like, this is, this is why this 5711R with Tiffany stamp is, is awesome. You know, it's just extremely matter-of-fact. And I think that is something that the, the Swiss watch industry and, and luxury in general was, was never very good at. It's just like, you know, they would sell you on emotion. They would sell you on things that, that were undefinable or indefinable, rather. Um, and, you know, you didn't really know why you wanted a Rolex. You didn't really know why you wanted a Protect Philippe or why you wanted a Ferrari or a Rolls Royce or whatever. You just, you just know that they're expensive, so they have to be good. Right. What I realized very quickly is that things actually are not necessarily good just because they're expensive. That's very true. Uh, and I learned that very quickly in watches and, and, you know, later on in cars and things like that. And once you realize that, that, like, that all of a sudden, like, that there is some, some knowledge involved in, in connoisseurship and, and the acquisition of things. You know, it's not all about just having money. It's very easy to buy expensive shit when you have money. It's not very easy to buy interesting and tasteful things when you have money. Uh, and I think that that's the differentiator between us and, and others is we're not going to cover any new expensive random shit just because it's there. We're going to say, like, this is why you should appreciate the 3700 Nautilus instead of that new nonsense that they came out with today, for example. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's really, it's, I, I think, as I said, that one of our strengths is being able to communicate in a very matter-of-fact way and saying, yes, this watch is $100,000, and yes, that is an absurd amount of money, and we are acutely aware of that. But it doesn't make you a bad person for wanting it. You know, no. it's just one of those things, like, if you want this and you can afford it, I want you to understand why it's worth that money. And if you can't afford it, that's fine. You know, it's not the end of the world. Like, you keep working, maybe you'll get there someday. So you touched on something a little bit earlier about how maybe that some of these other companies would try to tell you that you needed this, but you, you didn't, right? Right. Uh, I'm not calling out any watch companies or anything, but there was kind of, there's an integrity that falls a little bit into the picture. And one thing that I've noticed at least because, and I have firsthand experience with this because I, um, many moons ago, I met you because I was writing about watches for Esquire. Right. And I wrote something, and I think whatever it was, I was wrong. But you were, like, really polite. And you were like, hey, P.S., bro, on Twitter. You are like, this, is, this isn't this. This is this. Strangely, I actually remember what it was. <laughs> Go. Can, can you share with it? Yeah. It, <laughs> this is embarrassing that I remember this. But it was – you were writing for Esquire, and you said that the Paul Newman Daytona had the Zenith movement in it. Oh, yeah. Which is – it's not true. <laughs> no, now, now, like I'm, I feel so bad. I'm shrinking no. in this chair, <laughs> dude. I mean, it's like something that only like a watch nerd would would care about at all. It has the a Valjoux, right? Correct, Valjoux seventy two. Yeah. Well, respect. Yeah, totally. Um, so, 
I remember, so you called me on that, and I was like, oh, whoops, I'm so bad. And I remember forwarding it immediately back to the editor. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm an idiot. Because for me, I was getting most of my information from forums. Right. You know, uh, from forums or wherever I could find stuff. Uh, shout out to Jake's Rolex World Totally, man. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so you were like, hey, I think you invited me out to lunch. Sure. And you were like, you know, how long have you been writing about watches? And I was like, who is this guy? But you were very friendly. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, uh, I don't know. Because we went to the Dutch. This is right when the Dutch opened. And uh, you were like, yeah, you know, have you gone on any press trips? And I was like, oh, no. Like, I'm total space cadet. Very, you know, uh, very new to all this. And you kind of politely started to a little bit like mentor and guide me in the craziness of the watch industry. And I remember, um, so as I was writing, I was getting pitched to buy the editor who I was at, uh, who I was writing for at the time about all these weird things. And I remember I would tell you about some of the stuff I was writing and you were like, be careful. Like some of the, you know, cause I think one of the ones they wanted me to write was like basically about how to get knockoff watches or how to get watches, you know, that look like Panerai's and things. And mm-hmm. I was just doing what I was told, yeah. you know? And so you were like, you basically were trying to help form this, this sort of voice and integrity on that. And, the bigger point to connect to is Hodinkee of reading. I've never seen Hodinkee bash anything. Yeah. And, you know, and something that is so opinionated of, like, the industry and the watch things, like, how are you guys able to maintain sort of artistic integrity, have sponsorships with companies yeah. and things like that without either, A, bashing or, you know, unrightfully praising something yeah sure i mean it's it's a tricky question and and one that we deal with often and i think a lot of it is a up until a year and a half ago we were a three-person company like we were super and that includes all of our video production everything like really really lean and mean and that was that was purposeful because we wanted to to keep the the business small tight uh nimble and profitable uh and you know when you're a three-person company it's not that especially you know in new york city we all kind of like living in small apartments working downtown like it's not that hard to be profitable if you only have to pay three salaries and, and low salaries, mm-hmm. that, you know, and a WeWork space. It's not like we had a, anything like this. Yeah. Um, and so it, we weren't asking for much. So, you know, we focused on the brands that we really, really loved. And those, those are the, the legacy brands, the traditionals, the Omegas, the Vacherons, the Paddocks, the things like that. So, you know, we were just saying, hey, like, we're not going to write about, say, Panerai. Or we're not going to write about Hublot just because it's not, our, it's not our shit. It's not our stuff, you know? Yeah. Our guys aren't going to like it, so why even bother? We're not going to try to get their ad dollars. We're just going to let them be. So we're only going to focus on the guys that we like, and that was enough to pay the bills. Uh, and that was it. And it's also one of those things where, like, the, the idea of bashing stuff in print, you know, if this is Because consum- that gets a lot of clicks, so which it, people do. Yeah, it, it does. And, like, you know, in one of my classes in, in journalism school was actually taught by the editor-in-chief of Consumer Reports, who's the ultimate in consumer journalism. And, you know, she would tell us that, like, you know, and if, if you're going to do something, like, each story that, that's, that's panning something has to have a reason. And then Stephen Pulverin, our managing editor here, who recently came back, has this great line that he heard from one of his professors that says, you know, if something is bad, you should only really write about it if it's bad in an important way. You know, there are things that are just mm. bad. You know, there are things that are, that are just ugly and stupid and, and serve no purpose. But if something is bad in an important way, meaning that it's dangerous or it's really disrespectful to, to consumers, mm-hmm. uh, then it's worth covering. But... Almost no watch, almost no watch is bad in an important way because it's just taste. It's just personal taste. Like, I know guys that love Hublot. They love it. And, okay, like, I'm, not, I'm never going to convince them that, that, <laughs> that they shouldn't like it. So it's like, why even bother, you know? Yeah, Hublot is a very – if you're not familiar, Hublot watches look 
like little moon rocks on your wrist that were colored with somebody's Sharpie. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, again, if, if somebody releases a watch that is dangerous to consumer's health or dangerous consumer to consumer's wallet in a significant way, then, yeah, we, we would cover it. But, you know, that, that hasn't really happened. And it's also like if you look at Vogue. Anna Wintour doesn't dedicate pages to bashing, you know, the, the worst fashion of the year. Like, why? There's so much good in this world. Why focus on on the bad stuff? Right. Uh, and it's also just a, a you know a testament to, to the edit process. It's like if we covered everything, yeah, there'd be a lot of bad stuff that we wrote about. It, but we don't. We keep things really tight. We keep the edit really tight, and therefore everything that you see on the site, you know, more or less, is, is worth your time. And a, a, a slogan that we used to use, we don't use it as much anymore for whatever reason, was Hodinkee watches worth knowing about. Right. Uh, and that that actually isn't even proper English, but like it gets the point across. It's like you know you're only going to see something on Hodinkee that like you actually should, as a lover of watches, know about and care about. Everything else, forget about. Right. So while you guys are doing this, uh, I want to touch on a big. You guys, have, you know, you're the the first like real watch site, watch blog, mm-hmm. watch publication. Um, you then became one of the first companies to start really using video more. Yeah. And uh, I think it was called Talking Watches, right? Who was your yeah. first guest? John Mayer. Okay. John Mayer was our first guest. Okay. It was a good way to start. Yeah, we should, yeah. we should talk about the Mayer connection, too. Maybe, yeah. maybe, we, can, maybe we can do that. But, like, sure. where did the idea of, like, oh, you know what? Maybe we could take, because, you know, watches are so visual, yeah. maybe we could t- take this and make a video of it. Yeah. Like, wh- where did that come so from? So my very first Baselworld, my very first SIHH, I even went to Geneva one week before I was even invited to SIHH, and I had a little handheld Sony camera. Uh, with, uh, you know, a gorilla pod, tripod thing. Real quick, those are conferences. Correct, yeah. Those yeah. are like the trade shows, like, you know, okay. like auto show, whatever. Uh, so I bought a little camera uh, myself, and I brought him over there, and I would have the guy present the watch with a little camera on a tripod and say, here's the new Maitre du Tain or Jean oh, Dunant I remember or whatever. That. And yeah. that was like, that, that was honestly like bleeding edge. If I can call myself out, that was fucking bleeding edge for yeah. like consumer no, websites no one was back doing then. That. Like yeah. nobody was doing that. Uh, and I look back at now, like all my friends here at the company now just make fun of those videos. But like that was legit. Like that was that was 2008, 2009. Like nobody was doing that. Yeah. Uh, and so I put those up and people were like, this is amazing. Like, you know, I can hear from the guy who's the president of this brand or the creative director or whatever about this watch like directly. Like I don't even have to get involved. I just upload the video, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that that was kind of the first foray into that. And then we started doing more and more of that. Uh, and I, I loved it, but I was not, you know, <laughs> I was not certainly versed or talented in, in the video department. Uh, but then at Columbia, I met Mr. Will Holloway, who's currently around the corner from us here. Mm-hmm. And Will was just my drinking buddy. You know, we were just buddies uh, at school. And, we, you know, we were both a little bit older than, than some of the other uh, classmates and things like that. And we were also just kind of similar, um, similar personality. We just like started hanging out. Uh, and then I was going down to Argentina for a trip with Jaeger uh, when I was still in school. I remember that. The Casa Yeah, Casa Pagliano, exactly. Yeah. And I was just like, fuck. I, at the time, I was traveling nonstop. And I was like, hey, man, like, I really don't have time to edit this. Would you mind just editing my uh, my video? And I was like, oh, whatever. I'll buy a dinner or something like that. And he's like, yeah, sure. So he put it together, and it was amazing. It was like, you know, using my footage, which was not anything great. He put together something that was just awesome. And I was like, dude, this guy is good. Um, and then again, like we had more, you know, video projects. People saying like, "Hey, like we saw that Casa Fagliano video. Like, we, would you do something on mm-hmm. this?" And I would say, "Hey, Will, like let, let's partner on this. Let's just do it." Uh, and then we did it. And you know, I would say the first big thing that he shot for us, which is still one of my favorite videos, is when we got to see Eric Clapton's Platinum twenty four ninety nine, which is like, a what's a twenty four ninety nine? So it's it's a perpetual calendar chronograph from Paddock, but it's in platinum and it belonged to Eric Clapton. There's two of them. Uh, it is like you know essentially end game shit like just mm-hmm. the biggest and the best it ends up selling for almost four million dollars 
Uh, and so we got to shoot that in 2011, I'm going to say, or maybe 2012, maybe even earlier. That sounds about right. Uh, and so that was like, holy crap, like this was true, like high quality. You know, Because you, you shot that at Tiffany, right? Uh, we shot it at, the, at Christie's. Oh, Christie's. At Christie's, yeah. yeah. Uh, when Arell was, was there. Uh, and if you look at that video, like, you know, Will hates to talk about it because, like, it's the color correction is all fucked up. And, like, it's, it's, but, like, it's, a, it's an amazing video. It's an amazing narrative, even though, like, technically there's a few things that, that aren't as good as they would be today. Uh, so we started doing that. And then videos just became a big part of, of what we were doing. And it was myself. It was Steven, who's now back with us, uh, and, and Will. And then we, we had a few other folks join later. Um, and, you know, he's an amazingly talented guy and good guy. And we've been able to, to do some amazing videos with just him behind the camera. Like we've done we've done four camera shoots with just Will behind the camera. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, wow. And including the, the John thing. And like, you know, when John and I became friends. First was, name. John Mayer. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, when when he and I became was that was that Dickie? No, 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 no. It wasn't Dickie. I I was like, wait, who who do you mean, John? Yeah, yeah. No, so no, 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 no. When, when Mayor and I became friends, and I remember the first email we got from him, uh, you know, it was just like John has this insane collection, like just beyond next level. So he email he reaches out to you. So the the first email came from him, and I remember the day because another thing that we were early on with was e commerce. We started selling these straps. That's right. And that was 2011. I'm going to say, which was five years ago at this yeah. time. Uh, and Hypebeast, who I'm, I'm friendly with those those guys over there. Kevin has always been super supportive. He wrote, or they wrote about our strap collection. And I saw on the, the referral thing that, that I got this email, hey, John Mayer here, love what you're doing, we'd love to get involved. And I was like, what, what's going on here? And like the, the, the address. <laughs> Who's trolling me? Exactly. Uh, and the address was like Virginia. I was like, there's no way this is John Mayer. But anyway, I email him back. He's like, hey, like, shoot, here's my number. Give me a call. I call him. It is the John Mayer for sure. Uh, and we just chat about watches and like, you know, I, I kind of got the feeling that like, and he later confirmed that like, you know, he had been, he's a famous dude. He's got people around him all the time. Not all of them can nerd out about watches in the way that I can. And also not all of them are not trying to sell him something uh, and, uh, and are the same age. You're like, look, I don't want your money. Yeah. Dude, I had nothing. <laughs> I couldn't, I had nothing to sell him anyway. You yeah. Know? Uh, and so we just chatted for an hour or two about like, dude, should I get 5970 J or G? Like, you know, should oh I double gosh. down on the 5971 P? Those like, are watch references. Exactly. Like, really nerding yeah. out. And he's yeah. like, this is great. And so then we just kind of kept in touch and started texting and, and just kind of chatting about shit. And, you know, since, since that was you know, five or six years ago. Uh, and so, so he's like, I'll be on one of your videos. Did he offer himself? So it wasn't, it wasn't that fast. Like, we just kind of kept in touch. And then maybe six months later, uh, he just bought a new watch, a really special one. And he's like, dude, you should come over and photograph it. Like, I'd love to write a story about why I bought this watch. And mm-hmm. he'd already written one or two other things, like best vintage Rolex is under, whatever, 7500 bucks or something. And so, actually, Will and I went over to his, apart- to his apartment, which is across the street now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we met him, and he was just a nice guy. And he's like, dude, check this out. I just got this watch. Like, well, let's do a thing. And so, that's the first time that we, we, I met him. And that was, I think, 2011. Um, and uh, that, that story which was about a 5396 Tiffany Patek, which is this really rare thing. I remember that. Really has become, you know, kind of lore in, in the watch collecting world. And now that watch is referred to as the John Mayer watch, uh, even by Tiffany themselves, which is really? crazy. Yeah, uh, which is crazy. And so that was kind of how we first, like, you know, we, we had a big hit, um, you know, kind of editorially. Um, and then we just, you know, we were just chatting. We were like, dude, we should do a video. And then one time he was in New York with, you know, say seven of his watches, his early watches to do, mm-hmm. I don't even know what, Jimmy Fallon or something like that. And he's like, dude, I've got an hour and a half. Like, if you're around, let's do this. And me and Will are like, let's just fucking do it right now. So we walked down. We were over on the west side. We walked down to a restaurant called Little Prince on, on Prince Street. 
Yep. It's actually pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and we were just like, hey, like we're, we're, we've got John Mayer coming here an hour. Like, can we just film? And they're like, yeah, sure, whatever. Uh, so we just shot it. And it was like no rehearsal, no anything. Actually, I'd just flown back from, from Nantucket with a, on a Panerai trip. Um, and we are like, I hadn't showered. I hadn't done anything. And we had no script. And we just like shot it. And it was just the two of us talking. And, and Will edited and, and produced the whole thing. And like we knew it would be big because it's, it's John Mayer. And it's right. like his actual watches and it's video. Uh, we didn't know how big it would be. And so we did that. And, like, for that day, we definitely broke the Internet in, in the menswear world, you know? For sure. It was on GQ. It was on Esquire. It was on Hypebeast. It was on Uncreative. I mean, like, you name it. Yeah. It was everywhere. And so we're like, oh, wow, this, this is amazing. And then at around the same time, we'd become friendly with J.J. Reddick, who's a mutual friend of yours as well. Yeah. Uh, and J.J. is also just, like, the sweetest guy there is. And, you know, we ended up doing another video with J.J. that we filmed. I think, at the like, same place? Yeah, same place. And I think, like, the very next week. Like, it was, like, one after the other. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I didn't know it was filmed that close together. I, th- I, think, I think that's accurate. I mean, no more than, like, two weeks. But it was very, right. very close. Uh, and so we, we did those two, and they were both just amazing episodes. They're both cool young guys that, like, yeah. you know, good and, role models. And very different takes Completely. on how their watch and watch collections are. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, they're very different people, but, you mm-hmm. know, both very relatable, very likable guys mm-hmm. and very good at, at what they do. And then when, uh, after we did the John Mayer video, a man by the name of John Goldberger, who's like, he's he's the guy. And he's, then, he's, if you're not... If you're not aware, he's like the legendary collector. He's made all these incredible books, yep. um, like all these watch collecting books. I mean, he's yeah, he's he, he's the guy. He is absolutely the guy. And and what I, what I mean by that is like not only is his collection the most amazing, but his taste is impeccable. He's like he's the most elegant man. He refuses to sell watches directly, so that he doesn't get involved with like the the dirtiness of selling things. Like he's just like Smart. he's. He's a great guy, and like I, honestly, I, I can say there are very few people that I really look up to in like a meaningful way, and I genuinely look up to him. Uh, and he was like, I, you know, and he'd been, we and I had been friendly over email, and he said after the John video, I'd love to do one of those with you, which is crazy because like John Goldberger, which is by the way not his actual name, yeah, um, he's he's a really private guy. I mean, he goes by John Goldberger when that's not actually his name. Yeah, uh, he's that type of guy, and then obviously very well off, you know, old Italian, you know, aristocracy type of guy. Um, and he said, I'd love to do it. Let's, let's do it. And so Will and I were traveling to Geneva, uh, I think, to cover some, actually the Daytona auction, I think, or some auction. Right. And uh, he said, let's do it. And so we show up at this little, really, it's like the, the little prince of Geneva. It's like this little burger <laughs> place right there by the Four Seasons. And we shoot this thing. And, like, he just, like, the stuff he pulled out, I don't even know that I really processed at the time. But like looking back now, like you know, if you tr- I, yeah, I've rewatched that video so many. times. It's remarkable. I mean, like each one of those pieces is practically unique, if not unique. Yeah, uh, and it's just so beautiful and tasteful. And he was just a great guy. Uh, and that was like that was a, those three videos were amazing because we had like the celebrity, then the real connoisseur, and what that's what we try to do with this video series is like balance the celebrity thing that will get page views and get people excited about watches, which I think is equally important mm-hmm. um, to, with real connoisseurs, like real collectors that, that know what they're talking about to the, to the nth degree. And we, we're up to like 24 episodes now or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, you've had, you know, you've had Major League Baseball pitchers, yep. you've had, you know, just regular collector guys, yep. but it's always <clears throat> been, what I've liked the most about, about it is it's never been about, oh, this is about John Mayer and John Mayer doing this. It was really about the watches that he yeah. liked. And Everything about yeah. that. And we, like some of my favorite episodes are, are Goldberger, Mayer, JJ, the first three, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we do one with Jean-Claude Beaver, who's the president of Hublot and, and LVMH. That was insane. just insane. <laughs> it really was. It was yeah. a fun one. Uh, another one, a favorite, who's again, who's a guy who's become a friend, is Tony Fidel, who iPod designer uh, and then ended up creating Nest and selling it to Google. 
And like That's he's right. just one of those guys that like he just operates on a wholly different level. Like he is so fast and so smart and sees things on a totally different plane than like a normal person like you or I or at least me. Uh, and like he's a watch nerd like the rest of us. And like the, the first email I got from him was very similar. It's like, man, like I just love what you're doing. Like, you know, I read your site as much as I read any of the tech sites. And like he is a tech scion, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've had some really great run ins with, with folks like that over the years. So you also had a run in. I'm I'm saying this. You, you're not even prompting me to say it just because I want to talk about it. You also had a run in with another big tech designer guy, Mr. Ive, I believe. Yeah, I mean I've I've, I've met him. Um, so I mean Johnny Ive is is what can I say? He's he's a hero. You know, he, there again there are very few people that I would really get jazzed about meeting, but when I met Johnny Ive, that that was a big moment for me. Uh, and it was one of those things where I I had kind of. You know, been in contact with Apple about stuff, but I mean, you know, not not doing anything. Um, I'm a watch guy. They were making a watch. It just kind of made sense. Um, mm-hmm. But we covered, uh, we were the only watch people invited to the launch of the original Apple Watch. We covered it. And I wrote some a story with some photos that I took of my Nikon quickly. I think it was, uh, you know, thoughts on the Apple Watch from a real watch guy or yeah, something that like was that. A, that was a killer it's, post. It, it was. And that was still the most popular post we've ever done. I mean, really? it was just everywhere for, oh. the, for the first few weeks of the Apple Watch. The Apple Watch was the biggest news in the world for it was. a period of, of a few weeks. And yeah. thankfully, we, were at, we, were, we benefited from that. So that story was everywhere, including being cited in the New York Times many times, etc., uh, and then the next time I flew out to uh, to San Francisco to cover, I think the next update or something, uh, their PR representative said, "Hey, like we'd love you to hang around after the show or after the the announcement. Like, just meet me in front of the stairs." So I do. Uh, they walk me over and they say, uh, "If you're if you're interested, Johnny would love to just sit down and, and chat with you." <laughs> so and I've just of course lost my mind because uh, yeah. you know for like a guy that's into design or products or you know personal technology, like there's nobody bigger. Right. Uh, and I've just been a lover of Apple forever. Um, and we just chatted about stuff. He's a watch guy, really lovely guy. Um, and you know, it, it's, it's been kind of like Apple has, has been an interesting kind of relationship, you know, like we don't, they're not a commercial partner in any way. I've been a total Apple fanboy since, since birth. I mean, my uncle worked for them in, in the early eighties. My dad has pictures of jobs at like the Aspen ideas festival in, really? in, in like 1983. Oh, that's awesome. Um, you know, we have a Lisa at home. Like it, it's just been like an important company to me. Uh, so to meet Johnny Ive and get some sort of validation and like, you know, just to have him say like, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing. Uh, is remarkably meaningful to me, for sure. And that's something I'll never forget. And, you know, I've exchanged, you know, cursory emails with him every now and then since. But, you know, he, he's a he's really a wonderful guy, for sure. In, in a way that, like, he's a guy that doesn't have to be yeah. uh, or even care at all about little old me, but he does. And I think that that's really, really nice. That's pretty cool. So we're, I want to start to wrap up a little bit, but there's a couple things. One of the things that I wanted to discuss is there's a few brands that, um, Houdinki has really sort of championed and you know most of those were brands that I had never heard of like Universal Genève mm-hmm. uh, or Geneve yeah, Genève. yeah and and Longines and I had heard of Longines but like Longines or it looks like Longines <laughs> um, like where did what like how did you find these brands and and I know that like you know Longines is a store like you can go get it mm-hmm. but like you know Houdinki really found these other like vintage brands and really kind of like brought them out. Like, was yeah. that how did that work out? Was that just through you? You're like flipping through a catalog, or yeah. I mean, the, the the biggest thing that I ever did to really teach myself about watches was exactly that flipping through auction catalogs. Uh, and I've always been interested in in old things. Like when I when I was growing up, I listened to as much Snoop Dogg as I did like you know 
I don't know, uh, you know, the Supremes. You know, like I was really nice. into oldies when I when I was young. Yeah, and like the Drifters and people like that. So I was always into old Drifters things. Are great. Drifters are amazing. Um, <laughs> so uh, really into old things, and so I was like, I want a vintage watch. And the first watch that I bought myself really was a vintage Omega, uh, a, a Ranchero at Anticorum. I remember that. Uh, it was a cool watch. Um, and then you know I started getting catalogs, and I was like, wow, like here are for free effectively or twenty dollars a session or whatever. Here are like four hundred pages of like photos and descriptions of watches that have the year they're made, how wide they are, how thick they are, what movements in them. It's just like it's reference grade material, and it's all weird stuff. It's not the current PR push. It's not what's in the in the boutique this this month. Uh, and so I quickly quickly uh, became fascinated by vintage Patek Philippe, which is you know kind of the pinnacle of, of vintage watch collecting. Uh, still can't afford it today. Uh, certainly couldn't afford it back then. Uh, <laughs> and I was just like, shit, like, how am I ever going to get a vintage five se- a Paddock 570, which is a, a Calatrava, or a 1518, you know, these, these complicated watches. Yeah. And so I just saw in these catalogs these watches that look just like them. You know, they look just, just like a Paddock. The, the 1518, which is a calendar watch with moon phase and chronograph, looks just like a Universal Geneva Tricompax. It's not as complicated or certainly as, as expensive or well-finished, but it looks a hell of a lot, a lot like it. And they were even distributed by the same brand. So I said, shit, man, like, if I can get a Universal, like, I'm you know, half the way, not really, uh, to, to owning a Paddock 1518. Uh, and so I did that. I bought one for, for like 2000 bucks at a sale in 2011 oh or 12. 2000 <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and that one happened to belong to the grandson of this great collector, uh, Henry Graves, which is kind of meaningful. And that's a watch I'll never sell. Um, and same thing with Longines. I mean, like Longines makes amazing Calatravas that in many ways are as beautiful, if not more beautiful than, than any Paddock. Uh, same cases. Mm-hmm. You know, the movement is not the same, but it's it, 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 you get so close with spending like a literal fraction of what you have to for for paddock. And in many ways, like these watches are even cooler because like most people just don't know about it. And so I just started to like follow these two brands, Longines and Universal, at auction and and pay attention and and you know buy them when I could and when I couldn't, I would just write about them. Um, and and that's it. Are they still like some of your favorites? Like oh yeah, I mean you, you mentioned a watch like oh I'll never sell that. Are there any other watches that like you'll just never sell? There's a few. Uh, I mean, the first is the Omega my grandfather gave me for sure. I mean, that that's the must. Yeah. Uh, the Universal that belonged to, to Pete Fullerton, you know, I, I can tell never sell it. I don't see me selling it anytime soon. I don't even wear it that much, to be honest. It's kind of small now. Um, but it's an important watch for me in my collecting career. Uh, I've got other watches that, that I have one with my initials on the back that I'll just keep forever. Uh, actually, I have two with my initials on the back. Um, there's a Daytona that I love that I think is maybe the best watch ever made. My 3940 paddock I bought when I graduated from journalism school. You know, there's a small handful that I think are really meaningful to me. Um, the rest, I just love, you know. Yeah. And I, I think I'll probably hold on to a lot of them. But, you know, a big part of collecting is buying and selling and figuring out what you really love. And whether it's cars or clothes or computers or, you know, cameras, anything. Like, I, I'm a big believer in that it's totally okay to sell things. Like, you know, not everybody can just afford to continue to buy stuff, even the wealthiest people you know. So right. if there's something you're not really enjoying, like I think you like cosmically, you should be like, hey, I'm going to pass this on, let somebody else enjoy it, and then I'll go, I'll be able to go do something else. You know, that's a, I mean, that's a good philosophy. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, we're we're about to wrap up, but is there any other stuff that you would like to to say or add that I I, I missed or I didn't get to ask you about? No, I mean, I, I think like th- this has been a. It's been fun, <laughs> but it's been it's been a fun ride, like doing the Sodinky thing, because, again, like this was never intentional. And I think like a lot of people think that this whole thing was premeditated and there's some like master plan. And even today with 18 employees and, you know, funding from from Google and stuff like that, that there's no master plan. Like it's just we are genuinely watch people that just like want the best for 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 everybody. Um, and, and I think people are responding in, in a beneficial way. Um, I mean, for sure. 
I mean, I don't think this conference room <laughs> would have existed. I mean, you guys are, are, are you know, continuing to be the place for watches. Thanks, man. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that, uh, that wraps us up. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. Dude, it's my pleasure. All right. We'll see you. Take care. You've been listening to Blamo, a podcast with an exclamation point. I want to give a huge thanks to Ben Clymer for being my guest this week. You can always keep up with him and the whole team by visiting hudinky.com. If you'd like what you heard today, subscribe and listen to new and archive episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. Find me on the web at Instagram and Facebook at Blamo Podcast, or feel free to send me an email at blamopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.